to begin a poem by J. Barry Shepard. I have a hunch that much of faith is formed in looking backward, taking stock, reflecting on what has been and what might have been. Most of the time, you see, we're far too close to things to view them properly. The hassle-hustle of the everyday can blind us to what's really going on, obscure for us the chasms and the pinnacles that mark the landscape of our living. It's only when and if we take the time to glance across the shoulder and reflect, to pause and ponder where we are and how we got here, that we can trace the constant presence of a mystery that blesses as it wounds, that turns us inside out and upside down, that leads us by a path we did not choose, toward a hope we hardly knew we had, a trust that yet endures despite so much, a strange, familiar grace that touches everything we touch with promise. I'll even bet old stammering Moses leading his motley crew across that gap between the waves had no time to inquire about who put it there. He just saw a chance and grabbed it with both hands. Then later, on the other bank, or deep into the wilderness, he realized, so that's what God was up to all the time. Today is Mennonite Heritage Sunday. Each year we take time to look back and remember to look through the old photographs one more time, to listen again to the old stories we first heard in childhood, at least some of us did, to be grounded once more in the deep soil of our Christian history and heritage. Recollection, that's the name of the poem that I just read, and that's what Mennonite Heritage Sunday is all about, recollecting, recollecting, collecting again, collecting again what we've allowed to be scattered by the breezes of everyday life, those little winds that blow through our busy lives, picking up things that are not necessarily securely fastened by our attention and blowing them to kingdom come, or at least to the nether regions of our consciousness. It's easy to forget which makes recollection not just an act of nostalgia, a warm trip down memory lane, but a necessity if we are to remember who we are and where we've come from. If forgetting is the necessary first step toward idolatry, then remembering is the necessary first step toward being faithful. Now, in my experience, Mennonites value remembering who they are and where they've come from. You can call it a Mennonite game if you want to, but it is a serious thing figuring out where the other person fits in the larger picture and establishing our connection to that other person within the same frame, placing ourselves firmly within the community of saints, those in the clouds and those still around. It's not a game. It's serious business. Living as we do in a rootless time and a forgetful culture, it's necessary to remember our roots, necessary even for those of us who only recently have been grafted in. Now, Mennonites are not the whole church the whole family, the whole people of God, and that's a humbling reality for us to remember. Uh, the church did not begin in 1525 in Felix Mons's house. We believe that something good happened there. We unashamedly admit that we think that Felix and his friends got something right. Our corner of the church does fit us well, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating that. But we also remember that the church is a whole lot bigger than our little part, and we remember that and give thanks. So when we pull out the photo album on Mennonite Heritage Sunday, we see a lot of familiar faces, Menno and Dirk, George and Balthazar, Conrad and Michael, Margareta and Ursula and Dorothea. Those pictures bring back memories 
and we tell the stories again. That freezing January day in 1525 when Conrad Grable took some water and baptized George Blaurock, the time when Dirk Willems rescued his own jailer and so was recaptured and killed for following Jesus. We look at those familiar faces and tell those familiar stories and are comforted and emboldened. And there are a lot more photos which seem perhaps less familiar. Uh, Photos of Mennonites in a variety of times and places. Mennonites from Russia and Canada. Mennonites from Latin America and Africa, India and Indonesia. We may not recognize all the faces or know all the names, but we know that they are sisters and brothers, friends and neighbors who follow the same Jesus we do in ways that we can recognize and understand. So looking through the photo album, we not only see familiar faces, we also see new faces. We meet new friends new sisters and brothers, new members of the family, and we give thanks. But there are more than Mennonites in this album. There are Catholics and Orthodox and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists and Episcopalians and, yes, Pentecostals. There are liberals and conservatives, social activists, evangelists, missionaries, monks. When we add those pages to our album, we begin to realize just how great is this work that God is doing, how complex and wonderful, how varied and bewildering, or To shift metaphors in midstream, having surveyed the tip of the iceberg, we think we've seen and comprehended it all, and then someone suggests we stick our head under the water, and we're made aware that we've neither seen nor comprehended the half of it. Now, I think that one of the geniuses of our particular piece of the iceberg, um, the Anabaptist wing of the body of Christ, is its insistence on holding together worship and ethics, belief and behavior, holding together both the heart of faith and the hands of faith. Our European ancestors insisted that the proof of one's faith claims was in the life that was led as a result of those claims. As Harold S. Bender wrote in his 1944 essay, The Anabaptist Vision, and I quote, First and fundamental in the Anabaptist vision was the conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. It was a concept which meant the transformation of the entire way of life of the individual believer and of society so that it should be fashioned after the teachings and example of Christ. The Anabaptists could not understand the Christianity which made regeneration, holiness, and love primarily a matter of intellect, of doctrinal belief, or of subjective experience rather than one of the transformation of life. They demanded an outward expression of the inner experience. Repentance must be evidenced by newness of behavior, end quote. Now, Bender then went on to make clear that, um, well, many Anabaptists actually lived this teaching out. Even their enemies marveled at how well they lived out their ideal of discipleship. One opponent wrote that, and I quote, among the existing heretical sects, there is none which in appearance leads a more modest or pious life than the Anabaptist, end quote. Another wrote that, and again I quote, The Anabaptists soon gained a large following, drawing many sincere souls who had a zeal for God, for they taught nothing but love, faith, and the cross. They showed themselves humble, patient under much suffering. They break bread with one another as an evidence of unity and love. They helped each other faithfully and called each other brothers. They died as martyrs, patiently and humbly enduring all persecution. End quote. In fact, as it turns out, you had to be careful about living too humbly and honestly because it could get you accused of being an Anabaptist. Now, I'm going to apologize right up front for my poor pronunciation here, okay? Kaspar Schwenkfeld complained of this very thing, saying, quote, 
I am being maligned by both preachers and others with the charge of being Anabaptist, even as all others who lead a true, pious Christian life are now almost everywhere given this name. Bender writes that a certain Kaspar Zacher of Wellblingen and Württemberg, I told you, give me the Old Testament names any day. Um, anyways, Kaspar Zacher, or Zacher, or whatever, uh, was accused of being an Anabaptist. But the court record reports that since he was an envious man who could not get along with others and who often started quarrels, as well as being guilty of swearing and cursing and carrying a weapon, he was not considered to be an Anabaptist. (laughs) On the other hand, in 1570, a certain Hans Jager of Vergen in Wittenberg was brought before the court on suspicion of being an Anabaptist primarily because he did not curse but lived an irreproachable life. Well, those early Anabaptists understood that um, following Jesus meant living in obedience to his teachings. One first believed in Jesus and was baptized in water and the spirit. But the proof of that conversion was in the details of faithful living. Now, what those details were varied pretty widely from Anabaptist community to Anabaptist community. We modern Mennonites have wisely chosen, I think, to see ourselves as descendants of those early Anabaptists who practiced non-resistance and the love of enemies, who refused the sword, who regarded themselves to be citizens of God's kingdom rather than the human kingdoms around them. Uh, Since Bender's day, we do so a bit more humbly, recognizing that there really was no single Anabaptist movement. And so we identify intentionally then with the one with whom we feel kinship and a sense of roots. And I think, as I said, we've chosen well. For many of us, the act of recollecting takes us back to that stream of Anabaptism and the stories of faithful ancestors working to follow the voice of the Spirit and to recreate something they believe more closely reflected the truth of the good news. We sometimes even treat that early movement with the same high regard as we treat the New Testament church. And we look to both for examples to inspire us in our own living out of that same good news. We teach the stories of the martyrs to our children, and we invite them to learn them and to understand them and understand themselves to be part of that tradition. And we hope that they will do the same thing for their children and so ensure the future of our particular corner of the body of Christ. These stories are formational. They are necessary. They remind us who we are and where we belong in the church and what our particular calling is within that church. We find ourselves in the family tree, and so know ourselves to be rooted in something deep and strong and life-giving. But these days, we not only look back to Europe in order to appreciate our Mennonite heritage, we also look around, and we see sisters and brothers in Colombia and Congo who live faithfully in the face of potential martyrdom. We listen to stories from Ethiopia and marvel at how God protected that community and made it thrive even in a hostile environment. We hear word of Mennonites in Indonesia working at making peace with people of other faiths in times of great tension and unrest. We look around us and remember that the majority of our sisters and brothers now reside in the global south. And we take heart. We're challenged and encouraged to live more faithfully as we witness the faithfulness of sisters and brothers whose lives lives are much different from ours in many ways, but whose commitment to Jesus is the same as our own. Sisters and brothers who also intentionally hold together what they believe and how they live in ways which often make our efforts at faithful living seem pretty thin by comparison. 
So our recollection then is not just a looking back, um, it's also a looking around, remembering not only our common roots, but recognizing the expanse of the branches, a global community of Mennonites carrying on the traditions of our Anabaptist ancestors, shaping those traditions to fit our various contexts, but always insisting that our lives are to accurately reflect what we believe about Jesus Christ, continuing the Anabaptist practice of holding together our worship and our ethics, our belief and our behavior, the heart and the hands of our faith. Well, the gospel reading from Matthew has Jesus once again being challenged by his adversaries, this time in the form of a theological examination. Seeing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which I'm sure gave them great pleasure, the Pharisees conspired to trip Jesus up on their own. And they send an expert in the law to do it. And the lawyer asks Jesus to tell him which is the greatest commandment. Jesus answers with words that we know well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus, it seems to me, makes the case for the same joining of belief and behavior as that of our Anabaptist ancestors. Perhaps that's where they got it. Love God, worship God, practice your faith in God in ways which bring glory to God, and love your neighbor, and so reveal that what you claim about God is true. Love God, live accordingly. At various points in the New Testament, the earliest Christians make clear the necessity of holding these two commandments together. If we say we love God and yet hate our brother or sister, well, we're not telling the truth about loving God. If we've been reborn in Christ, then we're going to put away the old ways of behaving toward one another and instead live together in love. That's the teaching of the New Testament. It's what defined the early Christians, love of God, love of neighbor. The text from Leviticus 19 calls the people to be holy because the Lord God is holy. Over and over again in this chapter, the people are instructed how to behave, and the reason given for that behavior is, I am the Lord. Now, one commentator notes that we Christians tend to look at the book of Leviticus as being filled with the arcane rules of ritual behavior, rules for how to worship God properly. And there is an awful lot of that in Leviticus. Right worship was essential to the formation of God's people. But in chapters 18, 19, and 20 of Leviticus, God insists that right worship must result in right behavior, that love of God must result in the love of neighbor. From Israel's inception, God made clear that worship and ethics were meant to be held together, that true worship of God would be evidenced by loving behavior toward other people. And this is no surprise, at least it, it shouldn't be. Throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, Israel is challenged to love God and care for others. In some cases, the prophets go so far as to say that right worship is worthless if the poor are not cared for, and the widows and orphans are left unattended. All the sacrifices in the world mean nothing to God if the people don't live justly with one another. In fact, the command to love extends beyond the people of Israel, as they are commanded to, to love and welcome strangers and outcasts and even enemies. And as if to reinforce this, the Old Testament contains stories of God acting on behalf of people outside the covenant and of God using those aliens to communicate with and even punish God's people. So the message ought to be clear. Well, it is clear. Our roots go a whole lot deeper than the 16th century. They go all the way back to the forming of God's people, our oldest ancestors in the faith. 
So our Anabaptist ancestors did not invent this way of being God's people that insists on holding belief and behavior together. They learned it from the scripture. It seemed to them to be the way the people of God had always been commanded to live, and so they did their best to live that way too. Our roots go much deeper than 16th century Europe. Our heritage is much deeper than being Mennonite. It's a heritage that stretches all the way back to Moses himself. In fact, if we really want to recollect our heritage, if we really want to discover the true roots of our love for God and for neighbor, then we really have to begin before the beginning. We have to begin with God, the one who called our ancestors into being, the one who's ever since sought to call us to become the kind of people that God has always intended us to be, the God who taught us to love, the God who is love, the God who loves us and asks us to love in return, the God who gave us the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love one another, the God who sent Jesus to reveal that love in its truest form. If we really want to trace the roots of our love to their, its deepest beginnings, we have to look all the way back to God. So, where does that leave us on this Mennonite Heritage Sunday 2008? Pretty deeply rooted, I think. And with that, I will happily let the whole tree metaphor uh, go for a little while. Our Mennonite heritage is a broad and rich one. No longer bound by ethnicity and geography, we are happy participants in a worldwide movement of God. That movement is an important aspect of an even larger movement of God, the Church Universal. And we remain steadfast in our commitment to what our people have always claimed as central elements of the gospel, peacemaking, love of enemies, service to the poor and suffering, uh, witnessing to the gospel through our words and our actions. Even while we give thanks for the gifts we have in common with the broader church and celebrate the unique contributions shared by um, other parts of the church, contributions that we don't necessarily practice ourselves, but nevertheless value. And so the first thing we ought to do in recognition of our heritage is to offer thanks to God for including us in the story of God's people in the world. Secondly, I think our recollecting ought to result in a deeper appreciation for the changes in the Mennonite church over the last centuries. What began in white Western Europe is now a worldwide multicolored tapestry of Anabaptist witness and practice. Alongside our attachment to the stories of those early European reformers was an equally strong commitment to taking our understanding of the gospel wherever we went in the world, which means that today, alongside of those stories of Dirk and Conrad and Ursula, there stand the stories of Maria and Pascal and Pak Pailan, looking around the world and witnessing the growth and commitment of sister congregations throughout the world ought to cause us to give thanks to God and to seek opportunities for mutual support and the sharing of gifts with sisters and brothers in the global Mennonite church. Thirdly, this observance of Mennonite Heritage Sunday is an opportunity, I think, for us to recommit ourselves to holding our worship and our behavior together. Our recollection of where we've come from ought to challenge us to examine who we are and to pray for wisdom and strength to live faithfully in our context. How are our faith claims evidenced in our behavior? Do we live as if what we claim about Jesus Christ is in fact true? As we look back and around and remember stories of faithful Mennonites past and present, my hope is, my prayer is, that we'll be stirred up to an even greater faithfulness here and now. 
for. It's my hope that our recollecting will finally bring us back to the true beginnings of our faith, that this service of celebration of the gift of our Mennonite heritage will also be an encounter with the God whose love is our source, the God who loved us into being, whose love was made known to us in Jesus Christ, the God whose love demands to be shared with everyone we meet, neighbor, family, and enemy alike. And finally, it's my prayer that our recollecting will indeed serve to strengthen our faith, that the practice of looking back over our collective shoulder will reveal what we claim to be true, but so often miss in the middle of the muddle of everyday living. That is, that God has been with us for an awfully long time. Taking time this morning to celebrate our heritage as Christians and Mennonites, we are reminded Again, that the same God who loved us into being and commands us to love in return is still alive and well and working and moving among us and in our world. The depth of our roots, the breadth of the branches make that activity so very clear. Perhaps we can't always see it when we're busy making our way through the waves. But like the poet, I too pray that when we have the opportunity to look back and around us and see what was and what is, where we've come from, and where we've come to, that we will say with old, stammering Moses, so that's what God was up to all the time. Amen.